electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, what the final stretch of May might bring for your money and whether a summer surge is in the cards debate that with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. Degas Wright, the chief investment officer at Decatur Capital Management. Pete Nigerian, Joe Terranova. Kate Moore is the head of thematic strategy for BlackRock's global allocation team. Hello to everybody. Nice to see you all as well. Decent jump for stocks today. Dow's good for a chai of 200. S&P better than 1% today. NASDAQ is the outperformer. Tech's doing pretty well. NASDAQ's up 1.5%. There you go with a 200-point gain. I got another stock on the move, too. We'll talk about the, the markets at large, major averages, where we think we're going from here. Diana Olick, though, is watching shares of Peloton on my screen, which are up right now, uh, at least off the worst levels of the day. What's up, D? Well, Scott, Peloton is announcing plans to build its first U.S. factory located in Troy Township, Ohio. That's just south of Toledo. It'll be on 200 acres, have more than one million square feet of manufacturing office and amenity space, making it one of the largest connected fitness manufacturing plants in the world. It will produce the bike, Bike Plus and Peloton Tread starting in 2023. Groundbreaking expected later this summer. Peloton will commit about $400 million to the facility and expects to add over 2,000 jobs jobs to the area across executive, manufacturing, managerial, and assembly. Just got off the phone with CEO John Foley. He told me while they had planned to do this for years, quote, the pandemic put an exclamation point on why it's going to be awesome. When you think about supply chain flexibility, shortening lag times from customers, and mitigating against geopolitical risk. You may recall Peloton had some very costly supply chain issues over the past year. He also mentioned that it will give them more capability to bring other products to market beyond the bike and tread. We are an innovation shop, he said. We will be bringing new platforms to the market in the coming years. There's no question. Now, Peloton will continue to manufacture in Asia, as well as in its new pre-core factories in North Carolina and Washington State. Back to you guys. Yeah, Di, real quick. I mean, you, you hit it there towards the end. I mean, that, that's really the reason they're doing this. They had major supply issues. In fact, someone on our show major. sold the stock because of those supply <laughs> issues. Now, recently has bought it back, bought it back. Uh, but that was a major issue. Yeah, because they had to put millions of dollars into air shipping because their regular shipping was so far behind. They were losing customers. They weren't able to add those sales to their books. So then they had to put out the money for the air shipping. This is going to cost them a lot less. Of course, when you talk about European expansion, then they're going to have the opposite issues. But those will probably still come out of Asia. All right. Good stuff, Diana. Look, thank you for that. We'll keep our eyes on shares of Peloton through the remainder of this hour. Let's go bigger, uh, guys, if you will. All right, Pete, here we go. The stretch. This is the final stretch of May. We start to look forward to the summer. It's been volatile, to say the least. S&P is good for about a half percent, a little bit shy of that. What do you think we're heading for? Summer swoon, summer surge, summer sideways? How's it feel? 
Uh, sideways sounds like probably the right direction, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about the market still, Scott. I think there are patches of the markets that are going to do very well that have been doing well, and I think they'll continue to do so. You know, like areas like the financials, but not just the financials. I think when you look at materials and you look at energy, I still think there's plenty of room for the upside, and I think that we are seeing that on a day-in day and day-out basis, specifically when we look at energy. And some of the volatility, yes, we jumped up to 67, pulled back to 61, and now here we are starting to move back up towards 67 again. I just think the energy space has a lot more room to run, Scott. So I think for that reason, I, I think that's an area that you still want to have a lot of exposure in. I, I do think, however, when you look at all those high multiple, no multiple names that are out there that have been absolutely slammed, I think there are trading opportunities there. I don't think any of those parts of the market still are, are stocks that I'm, I'm a very all that interested in buying. But I certainly will trade them. And I think that's what the, the beauty of the options market is. It gives us the opportunity to be involved in some of those names without having so much exposure that you can't sleep at night. I can sleep at night because of the exposure I've got and the limits that I have in terms of risk and reward that I have in some of those different positions. Pete, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and we're going to get to those in, in a little yeah. while. So don't go specific on me um, just yet. Nope. Shan. Nice to see you. Hope you had a good weekend. I got a note from Tom Lee in front of me today. It says the positive risk reward for stocks is becoming increasingly more positive. He's looking at COVID cases, which are now, I think, like the lowest level since March of 2000. So it's been a long time and it's trending overwhelmingly in the right direction. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, I think this risk of a, you know, variant um, expansion and, you know, a lack of vaccinations, we certainly have hit a plateau on the vaccine side, but we've got a lot of people out there who are vaccinated. We have a lot of people who want to get out, um, start spending money, start spending this savings surplus that we're sitting on. Uh, and, you know, you're still looking at a Fed that is pretty supportive. I know there were some questions last week with the minutes, but overall, there's still a tailwind there from monetary policy perspective. And I just think about it in terms of what are your alternatives? I mean, we're seeing the alternatives in the crypto market. Those look a little choppy right now. You're looking at bonds, still not a great buy. Um, I think the equity markets here and outside of the United States, let's not forget, we're not the only game in town, um, still look pretty attractive coming into the back half of the year. But I agree with Pete. I think we have a little bit of a sideways summer on the broad indices with some potential opportunities mixed in. Man, I don't know, Joe. You know, I, I was looking at the uh, I was watching the Nick game uh, yesterday and I don't know if you were either uh, as well, but you see the crowd at MSG and it just it felt like a metaphor for the entire feeling of coming out of this pandemic because MSG was on fire. And I was thinking to myself, like, man, uh, people are going to go absolutely crazy this summer in a great way and have a lot of fun. And Tom Lee says we're going to 4,400 by mid-year uh, because he's thinking about the rebound and the reopen and all this stuff in the recovery. But I've got two people now, just Pete and Shannon, telling me we're going to go sideways. <laughs> Do you agree? Yeah. Well, the, that crowd was enthusiastic at MSG. The crowd was enthusiastic in Nashville for the hockey game with Carolina in the 18th hole for the PGA Championship. Boy, that was an enthusiastic crowd. So I agree with that. Uh, sideways, I'm going to agree with Pete and Shannon. I think the market is in need, given the significant rise that we experienced in April. You have to have these moving averages kind of rise up to meet the S&P. We're beginning to do that process. The 200-day was about 14.5% below the S&P price just three weeks ago. Now it's only about 11%. We've got the 50-day about 2.2%. 
below the S&P. But I think you've got a sideways market, Scott, with opportunity. You've got 26 new 52-week highs today for the S&P 500. You've got CVS, Target, Morgan Stanley all included there. You've got seven uh, new 52-week highs for the NASDAQ as well. So I think it's about finding the quality of stock where you want to be. And I use the word quality because I think that's the right word. You began the show talking about Peloton. I can't embrace a stock like uh, Peloton right now and understand those stocks from 2020, boy, the comps are going to be really difficult for them in the coming quarters. I, I just don't understand. Like, what, Kate, what keeps us from breaking out of sideways? Why do we have three people leading into you all saying the same thing about where they think this market's going and it's a whole lot of nowhere? Instead of saying sideways, I say I think we're in a trading range for the next little bit. And this is a perfect example where we have to separate out the economy where we are super bullish and see tons of acceleration coming over the, you know, the next couple of months. And the equity market, where I think we're going to continue to have a little bit of a pause. And look, I think there are three things that are going to hold back the equity market from breaking out to meaningful new highs in the next few months. The first is like digesting inflation. You know, we know prints are going to be higher, but we don't understand exactly how it's going to impact each company's bottom line. So that's going to take a moment. The second is, you know, policy. BlackRock and, you know, my team have been out front talking about how the Fed really needs to start talk about, talking about tapering. Uh, and we really want to get a sense for how policy is going to adjust in the back half of the year and the beginning of next year and see how that gets priced into markets. And then the third thing is something that came up a lot, of course, in the first quarter reporting which is around supply chain challenges. We just heard that in, in terms of Peloton, but supply chain challenges across many different industries combined with labor shortages. So I think the market needs to digest a whole bunch of this sort of macro stuff before we can really break out to new highs. Degas, I know you're thinking about that story I was telling at MSG because you, you are thinking about the same thing taking place in Las Vegas and everywhere else that has casinos specifically owned by MGM Resorts, which you just bought. Yeah, Scott, you know, we really like MGM because ultimately, if you think about entertainment conferences, you think about Las Vegas, MGM controls and owns 45% of the available rooms in um, Las Vegas. Also, another reason why we like uh, MGM is because of the regional play they have. Uh, the, the Detroit MGM, Springfield, National Harbor. And then the third reason is the sports betting, uh, game, uh, iGaming. That's the growth area, because right now we have about 12 states that have gaming allowed. We're looking at a possibility of 38 states by 2025. In addition to that, we have uh, someone that's investing in this uh, MGM, uh, Barry uh, Diller, uh, with the Interactive Corp. Uh, he has invested 12% into MGM because of BetMGM. So we see a lot of upside, plus, we're looking at the investment they're making in diverse suppliers. They spend about 9% with diverse suppliers. Also, they have a solar panel that they're, going, they're building right now that would provide basically 90% of the energy they need for those Las Vegas properties. So we like MGM. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the word energy, uh, which is funny because, Pete, you love energy. We're talking about, you know, sort of Love cyclical. It. We talked a little bit about inflation. We've heard some commentary about that already today. You like energy. 
Tom Lee says energy is his favorite sector. As I mentioned, 4,400 by mid-year is what his call is. By the way, happy birthday, Tom Lee. Uh, UBS says new momentum can continue to run. Among them, energy particularly stands out, they say, as a relative winner from higher inflation and peaking growth. Tell me about energy, Pete. Well, I just continue to view it, Scott. I mean, everybody gave up for dead on, on energy for a, lo- a long time, actually. And then all of a sudden, when November rolls around and it's $38 for oil and everything else, we started to really start to ramp it up to the upside. And a lot of those names, specifically the beta names that had absolutely been crushed, started to get a little bit of a bid. And as we've watched the price of oil go up and up and up, and here we are, like we were talking about, pushing towards 70, not quite there yet, but I don't... I expect to see, and I'd, I'd be curious if what Joe thinks too. I actually think we're we're going to see oil cl- probably closer to 75 or 80 in the not that distant future, in my opinion. So if I'm right about that, then I think it makes sense to be in these beta names as well as some of the really big names. Like for instance, I've owned Chevron for quite a long time now, and I continue to own it. It's Great company, great dividend yield, all the things that go along with it, and selling options to create even more of a yield against that stock that has moved to the upside. But there's a lot of different names right now, I think, that are very powerful names in the energy space that, are, that, that still have plenty of room. And because of that, if I'm right about the price of oil going to where I think it's going, I think these beta names really do start to ramp up to the upside even faster. Joe, why don't you weigh in? I was going to go to you next anyway. Pete was uh, channeling that. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll uh, see see Pete seventy five and raise him to maybe even eighty or eighty five. I think that's the direction we're headed. There's really no incentive right now on production. You still have sitting out there the resolution for the uh, Iran nuclear deal. What is going to be as it relates to production uh, for the follow through there? So I, I like that assessment. Uh, the propensity to get investment surrounding energy is a lot less than it used to be 15 years ago just because of the very small weighting within the S&P 500. But you have to have some exposure there. I do in a limited capacity through Suncor, and I'm maintaining that position. Well, let me ask you this. If we spend a lot of time trying to figure out, Joe, uh, how much of the reopen is in the market itself, let's just say the the S&P, why aren't we asking ourselves the same question about how much of the reopen is in the price of crude? I mean, don't you think a lot because of it's already I, in 65 yeah. bucks? I, I, but I, the reasons, the fundamental reasons why I think the, the pricing of oil is supported here and can move higher, yes, in that formula, it is about the reopening of the domestic and global economy. But I think there's more to it than that. I think it's the move towards renewable energy, which is disincentivizing production. So you're going to uh, lessen supply. I think there are geographic challenges. Just look in Europe right now for natural gas. You're seeing natural gas prices in Europe spike dramatically. So I think there are supply concerns globally that are really exogenous just to the reopening of the economy. Okay, let's uh, pull up shares of Carnival and Norwegian. Uh, Guys, if we could, uh, our executive producer, Prashant, was just sending me a note that the White House says the president is going to sign an Alaska tourism bill allowing cruise ships to return to Alaska this year. That's why you've got Carnival on the move by better than 2%. We can throw up the other names, too. Norwegian, Royal Royal Caribbean, RCL. See what uh, those names are doing there. Everybody's getting a a spike on this news. I think Florida is still a bit of an issue. um, Exactly what's going to happen with cruising from from that state. 
and the ports there. But nonetheless, this news that we're just bringing you now is moving the cruise lines, which brings me to another stock, which I wanted to talk about, sort of plays right into this whole, you know, travel, vacation, reopen, et cetera, is Disney. Shannon, Disney, the worst Dow performer month to date. And I know after earnings, there were some questions about the subs on Disney+. Plus. What, is that the main issue that the market's trying to figure out? It, it, the stock had already moved a tremendous amount. And now if growth of subs on Disney Plus is going to slow a bit, you have to maybe think about a, a, re, a re-rating of how you look at it. Well, we've we've switched the type of investor that owned Disney. Prior to the pandemic, dividend stock investors owned Disney. They loved the cash flow. They loved the recurring revenue from the networks and from the parks. Then we had Disney Plus and streaming became the story. And so now we're in this no man's land again where dividend investors aren't really incentivized to go into the stock because they're probably not going to uh, raise the dividend or reinitiate the dividend until next year. And you're looking at this growth component that maybe isn't strong enough to warrant versus relative growth rates in other companies. And so I think right now we're in a lull. For me, I still see those two parts of the company as being valuable over the next couple of years. So I would say if you're looking at this relative underperformance for Disney in the near term and you don't own it, I would put a position in. Parks are going to come back. um, Ad revenue is going to come back. And Disney Plus is going to be one of the two main winners. I don't I, I know we're talking about Discovery and Time Warner being the third, but I'm still putting my basket in Netflix and Disney as being the two streaming winners. Great opportunity to, to get into the stock if you're not in there now. All right, Degas, you agree? I mean, you own you own Disney shares. You know, Pete has has thought the stock was expensive, you know, when it was up around two. Now it's had a it's had a bit of a comeback, come down, down to 178 or, or wherever it is as we're talking about it today. They're at 175, excuse me. What do you think about it here? Yeah, we still like it. And I agree with Shan. I think this is a play more on and you have to look at where the most of the revenue comes from. It still comes from the media side of of the business. And then you have the parks reopening. So this is a company that we really like as part of that reopen trade. That's going to happen. People need to go somewhere and they're going to be going to the parks at uh, Disney. And along with the uh, streaming, is that's going to come on strong also. So we, we still like it at these levels. Okay. So, Pete, I mentioned your name, and the, I did that on purpose because yeah. you, you alluded earlier to a, a trade, and I underscore trade, put it in all caps three times, ARC. <laughs> you bought calls in ARC. Now, for those who watch the show on a regular <laughs> basis and follow you on Twitter and otherwise, the, the saying that you've had, they, they being the Kathy Wood-type ARC stocks, they have no multiple, is, is how you've described right. them, meaning they have no earnings, so there is the, the, the stock's not trading at a multiple to anything, right? That, that's essentially the point you're making. Yes. ARC calls, though. Right. Why? Why? Well, here's why, Scott. I'll give you a great example. I mean, I won't give you specific names because I think you wanted me to hold back on other names. But I will tell you, these triple-digit, quad-digit type names in terms of P.E. or no P.E. at all, Yes, they've been cut in half or more. When you look at a lot of these various names, names that were $400 plus stocks are now trading below 200. I think that does create some sort of an opportunity to take a look and trade it, not own it. So I want to be very, very specific. I do not own 
the ARC stock. I own ARC calls, which gives me the opportunity to maybe get a ride if we start to see that particular space pick up a little bit better. And we have seen a little bit of that. We're starting to see a little bit of a lift from some of those various areas that do have these incredible PEs or no PE. And I think that there's an opportunity to trade that. That being said, again, I want to be very specific. I am not buying the stock. I'm not buying the stocks in those names. But I do think there are opportunities to trade it, given the fact of where they were, where they went to after their IPOs, and where they've dropped to now. I think there are that has created some opportunities, at least in my opinion. I mean, you're still making the same sort of call, just on a shorter-term basis. I mean, right? I mean, that's yes. what we're talking about With here. Limited you, risk. you still think the value of it is going higher You've just limited your risk by doing it on a shorter term basis and putting less capital at risk. Yeah. Right. That's a, the big key is this, the capital at risk, because you've got to be willing to and understand in the options world that obviously not every single trade is going to work. But with the stock side of it, you can really get harmed pretty significantly if you're wrong, like so many people were when they were chasing after some of these names. And those names were trading at 350 and 400. Now they're trading under 200. But that's why the options give you that, that opportunity to jump in and in a time frame, whatever that time frame is. It doesn't have to even be short, Scott. You could go out in time. You can turn it into spreads. There's a whole lot of different ways you can attack the markets and i think this is the way you could trade this specific area of the market like i say i don't own the stocks i wouldn't want to own those specific stocks that i've talked about but it gives me the opportunity now there are some high pe names that i've owned the stock in there's no doubt about it but there are reasons behind that where i've got implied volatilities that give me an opportunity to sell options against those positions that are absolutely ridiculous and give me that much more uh, confidence that I can hold on to some of those names. How about you also bought Coinbase calls I'm looking at right now. I mean, yeah. crypto very much yeah. in the conversation today because the volatile weekend right. where you had, you know, Bitcoin down around 30, 32 ish or something, you know, ab about that level. Yeah. Ethereum got smoked mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Those the, when you look across the whole crypto space, Scott, you're exactly right. They were getting absolutely hammered. I mean, when you look at the volatility in that crypto space, Bitcoin specific, but a, a pick, take a pick of your name. Yeah, they're extremely volatile right now. That tells me that a name like a Coinbase, I can trade it again. This is one of those names where I do not own the stock. I don't want to own the stock, but I'm going to trade the options in it. And we saw some significant upside call buying just last week in Coinbase. Gives you an opportunity to be there. And if I'm right and we see an acceleration of some of that activity, I think that's a great opportunity. But I don't think for a longer term that this is something that I'd, I'd want to own the stock in. I'd much prefer just trading around with Coinbase and some of the other names that are out there in the crypto space. As we were just talking about Kathy Wood and, and the ARK stock, too. Obviously, Tesla comes to mind, Degas, which you own, um, which is interesting to me, if this is correct. You're underweight relative to your, your other holdings, but you do own Tesla. The stock gets initiated today, equal weight at Wells Fargo Securities. $590 is the price target. It's a couple of percentage points higher from where we are right now. Give me your view on Tesla, knowing that I'm sure, you know, bunch of folks who are watching us right now are probably involved in one way or the other. Yes, Scott. So what we look at is that we look at it from a shareholder's value. And so we go through a look at the evaluation, the profitability of Tesla and also the expectations for Tesla. And so what we have done is that we've underweighted our exposure. We still have exposure, but we've underweighted it because we don't see as positive outlook 
as the, the note that you mentioned. So, and that's what, where we are with Tesla because ultimately we have to have some exposure to Tesla because of the size of it is in our benchmark. But once again, we don't see a lot of upside in the short term for Tesla going forward, and that's why we underweighted it. You know, what's interesting is, you know, the ARK stocks themselves have had a big reset. Crypto has had a big reset. SPACs have had a big reset. And yet the market has held in pretty well throughout the month of May. I said the S&P was up a fraction, a half a percent. Mike Santoli's been, been looking at that. And maybe the broader statement, Mike, that that makes through all of these little episodes that we've endured the market has actually managed to come out of it pretty well. Sure. Uh, actually, I think you go back uh, more than three months because mid-February was really the peak in all of those three kind of subsectors and mini-manias that you mentioned there. Uh, and they've unwound pretty thoroughly. And yes, the S&P 500, never mind May, we're up almost 12% year to date. So, you know, one of the questions of why does everyone see maybe some range-bound trading in the summer? It's because you're up 12% in less than five months on top of a huge rally last year. But yes, I think that's a, a very relevant point. I would even dial it back to last year when the big complaint and the perceived vulnerability of the market was the extreme concentration in fang-like stocks, the five or six stocks that were running the show, uh, and the complaint was, well, if these stop performing, then look out. Well, they stopped performing uh, 10 months ago, nine months ago, and they've gone mostly sideways. A day like today, they've been lagging for a while. You get a mean reversion bounce in them, and it helps in this whole rotation. So I do think the takeaway there is that there is a fairly sturdy underpinning, obviously because of all the liquidity, the policy moves, the fact that you have incredible momentum in the real economy, and corporate earnings continue to be revised higher. So all that stuff, I guess, allows the, the the market allows investors to rotate as opposed to exit uh, when you do see these volatility storms uh, come up. So it's arguably been stress tested a little bit, this market. And the idea that you reset people's attitudes and the technical condition of the market and risk appetites and portfolio exposures because people see these shocks back off and, and start to, to actually look at what can go wrong. And then when nothing really breaks, uh, you just bend, you don't break. And, and the market has been able to refresh itself to go higher. It, I don't think it goes perpetually, but we're here now. It's so funny because as you're giving your report, I'm, I'm writing down literally on, on my paper in all caps, liquidity, exclamation point, yeah. and reopen, exclamation point, huh. in all caps, being the two principal reasons why the market has been yeah. able to, to hold in. But yet, I don't know if you heard the top of our show, sure. I've got three or five people who are suggesting we're going sideways. Right, well, the, it's based on the distance traveled, I think, and maybe how the indexes are made up and what it would take to kind of move them, move them higher. Uh, look, I think reopen, let's think about this for a minute. The reopen trade really was, that's what November was to March was about. I mean, if you look at yeah. the PEJ, the entertainment and leisure ETF, that peaked in March, airlines peaked in March. The market doesn't look ahead six or eight weeks, in theory. It looks ahead six or eight months. So I think almost the reopen, pure reopening move is kind of priced in. The real question is, what's the sustainable global reflation and recovery story? And now if Europe's going to you know, edge toward reopen, what does that mean for industrials, things like that? All right. Um, Kate Moore, I was going to say goodbye to you, but we need to hear more from you. Are, are you, you have any lunch appointments or anything? Can you stick after the break and hang out with us for a bit? To say yes. I can. All right. I yes. knew you were going to say that. All right. Kate Moore is going to stick around. <laughs> We've got semi stocks on pace for their third positive day in four. NVIDIA reports this week. We got the trade there. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two minutes. 
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden is expected to announce a $500 million increase in funding to help communities better prepare for extreme weather. The Washington Post says that Biden will make the announcement in about an hour when he visits FEMA headquarters to talk about preparations for hurricane season. Police officers will continue to be immune from many types of lawsuits. The Supreme Court decided that it will not take up a case that challenged that qualified immunity. The case was brought by the family of Luke Stewart, a black driver who was fatally shot by a white officer near Cleveland in 2017. And more diplomatic reactions to Belarus diverting a commercial jet and arresting an opposition journalist. Latvia says that it is expelling the ambassador of Belarus and all of that country's diplomats. This after Belarus expelled the ambassador of Latvia and all but one staff member of its embassy. The White House says that Belarus's actions are a shocking act that demands an international investigation. The Czech prime minister likens the incident to state-sponsored terrorism. You can see how other world leaders are condemning Belarus and how sanctions may affect air travel tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Okay, Rahel. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. All right, Black Rocks, Kate Moore. What do you make of Mike Santoli's thesis here and and what, what he was talking about? It's like the I will survive market. Yeah, look, I think there's a this is actually going to be an interesting week for us, despite the fact that the bulk of earnings are behind us, because a lot of what we're talking about is, you know, can some of those software and technology companies lead once again? And we have 10 software and hardware companies reporting this week. You know, a lot of these strong reports, and we're not talking about the stuff that doesn't have any earnings like Pete was talking about a moment ago, but a lot of these companies that have reported have put up good numbers, have raised their guidance, have had enthusiastic management outlooks, have not been that well received by the market. Right. I think this next, these next couple reports are going to be a litmus test. And if we have companies put up good numbers and are still not well received, I think we're going to really have to focus more on the cyclical and rotation trade things that are more geared towards the economic reopening, as we've been talking about in this program, and less about the longer-term secular demand. I know you gotta, you got to run to a meeting. I appreciate you hanging out. I hope I didn't ruin your, your opportunity to have lunch before your Never. meeting, but we'll see you soon. That's Kate Cheers. Moore joining us from BlackRock. Um, she makes a great point, Shannon, about the reaction to earnings. And, you know, I know she was speaking directly about the FANG stocks, Kate was, about great earnings, no reaction. Well... Talk about some stocks that haven't traded all that well lately, and it's the cloud names. And, you know, I don't know what that means about where the bar is going in, but you've got Zscaler and Okta and Workday and Snowflake and Salesforce and Box. And Box has had an an activist in there, so that may be a different story. Uh, But you own Salesforce. What do you think about what Kate Moore said? I think it's a great point. You really need to look at those to see what the reaction is going to be if the earnings are good and they don't move. Well, I think some of these cloud names have been really caught up in this work from home, stay at home. You know, this is why we need the cloud. 
And the reality is, is I think that the pandemic has reset expectations for digital engagement for companies going forward. And so let's talk about let's talk about Salesforce, for instance, the chassis upon which you can build a digital engagement strategy with your clients um, and not just your clients, but your coworkers and customers and suppliers. It really does create an opportunity over the next several years to be able to expand to different industries and sectors. So in the interim, I think that there is this pressure. Again, Salesforce also had a little acquisition tucked in there that never goes well if you go back to the Tableau acquisition in 2019. But I think it's important to look at this in terms of what does the new world look like? We're talking about reopening and everybody's going back to travel. I think many of us are going to be in a hybrid situation for some time. And I think digital engagement and the cloud that supports that is going to be necessary and will continue to grow as a percentage of enterprise spend. Pete, you sold Snowflake calls and you bought Oracle calls. Can you talk to me about those, please? Yeah. Yeah, the the Snowflake is a great example, Scott, and I didn't want to jump on that too early, but that's a great example of a stock that, you know, it opened at ridiculous levels, in my opinion, when you look at where the IPO was and where the stock was and where it fell all the way back to. And we were talking about this last Tuesday on the show because the previous week we had some call buying in there. They were buying the June 205 calls. They were paying about 12 bucks. Those calls are now a little over $34. So it's, you know what, trade it, but I am not going to own it. I'm not going to own the stock. And I think you still have to be very, very conscientious about being, well, you've got to be very focused, I should say, about being disciplined. Because if they are trades, you have to treat them as a trade. The worst thing you can do is turn a trade into something that we call an investment for all the wrong reasons. So I continue to look at a lot of these various names and Snowflake being one of them as a trade. I'm looking at some of these other names, though, the old school, the old guard tech where I've bought some calls and I'm taking a look and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of looking under the hood and start thinking it over. I think some of those names are going to have to be stock names for me mm-hmm. in the very near future. So I'll probably be converting over the Oracles of the world and the Cisco types of, of different names that I haven't been in in, wa- in a while in terms of the stock. But I think mm-hmm. the stocks still have plenty of room to run and they have the right valuation, in my opinion. OK, Joe, I want to get to a new name that you bought um, related to the space. We'll do that, though, after I take a quick break. By the way. I hope you've heard by now the auction underway for our first NFT and proceeds go to two great causes. Ten years ago today, we lost a friend when Mark Haynes died. He was a fixture at this network from its launch until the day he passed away. He is remembered for a lot of things, of course, but certainly for the Haynes bottom when he called the low in the S&P 500 on March 10th, 2009. I I, I think we're at a bottom. I really do. Certainly one of the most iconic moments in this network's history. We're auctioning an NFT of that famous call from 09. We're also selling a set amount of tokens for anyone who doesn't want to participate in the auction itself. It's all online now. Mintable.app slash CNBC. It ends at 1030 Wednesday morning. All proceeds go to Autism Speaks. That was a favorite charity of Mark's and the Council for Economic Education, which focuses on financial literacy. You can go to mintable.app slash CNBC. And by the way, it's also a carbon neutral event. We're purchasing carbon offset credits from a firm called Ariel to make sure we have no negative impact on the environment. Coming up next, the big ETFs to watch today. And as we go to break, a look at some of the stocks hitting new highs. Intuit, automatic data processing, and Pete's favorite target, We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich 
is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Our guest today, Rich Powers, head of ETF and index product management at Vanguard. Jay Jacobs is the head of research and strategy at Global X. Rich, you run Vanguard's ETF business, second biggest ETF business in the world today. Special anniversary, 20th anniversary of the launch of Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF. VTI is the symbol. It's now the third largest ETF in the world. It was your first one. 240 billion assets under management right now. Vanguard had index funds before, but this ETF, it really brought ETFs into the mainstream, didn't it? I think so, Bob. The, uh, you're seeing increasingly more investors preferring to access indexing through ETFs. And Total Stock is a great example of how you can do that in a very low cost and simple way. I think the other thing that you know, Vanguard's interest, in, interest in, into the space created was a low cost way to uh, uh, invest in ETFs a focus on great tracking by our sophisticated index teams, and an idea that ETFs don't have to be traded. They can be used as strategic long-term asset allocation tools. Yeah, low cost indeed. Three basis points for this and the whole, essentially the entire market here. Now, Jay, you run some of the largest thematic tech ETFs. We've been talking about this for weeks. Cloud computing, lithium battery, robotics, etc. Many of them have seen declines of 15 to 25 percent from the recent highs. But you have been telling me the outflows have been very modest. Now, why is that? Well, it turns out that investors really are in this for the long term. You know, these are niche parts of the market. You can see cloud computing and lithium mining companies really move around a lot in the short term. But the long term thesis is the rise of digitalization, the rise of electric vehicles, a lot of these really powerful trends. And for the most part, investors are really sticking in it for the long term. Yeah, it, it, very long term. Now, we're going to have a lot more about this uh, with Rich and Jay on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. They'll be joined by Nicholas Colas from Datatrek, one of my favorite analysts in the business. Nick will explain the differences between ETF prices and flows into and out of ETFs and more on why the ownership of these thematic tech ETFs is a lot stickier than people thought. It's not just short-term retail momentum people that are owning them right now. We'll have all the data on that, etfedge.cnbc.com. Halftime is back right after this. I got some moves to talk about. Joe, I teased one of yours earlier. Uh, Fortinet, talk to me. 
Well, we talked about the cloud names before. I like the cybersecurity component of cloud. Fortinet is a company that's really got a strong balance sheet, free cash flow generation above 20%, both 22 and 23. Okay, well, that was quick. Other moves, Chenier Energy, you bought that? I did, Scott. Sold out of EQT, rang the register. I want a little bit more of a global exposure as it relates to natural gas. You could own LNG, which is what I purchased. That's not going to give you the dividend, but is going to give you the, the exposure to what's going on right now with uh, European natural gas prices. Or you could own CQP. You're going to get a 5.5% dividend yield, same company. Uh, my quality momentum index actually owns CQP. Okay, good stuff. Thank you for that. Degas Wright, MetLife, M-E-T. Tell us why. Yeah, Judge, I really like MetLife. Uh, one, because it's focused on health and benefits. It recently acquired Pet First, which is an insurance company, insurance policy for pets. And we know that pets have really been, uh, a lot of people are buying pets during this pandemic. Also, we like it because of acquisition of BetQuest, which actually is a estate planning tool for online. We actually have a problem in the United States that 70% of Americans do not have a will. And this is one way of addressing that problem within 15 minutes online. We also like the investment they're making into insurance tech. And lastly, MetLife in 2019 joined the Principles of Responsible Investment, an organization sponsored by the United Nations that we are members of, to make sure that they're being responsible in their investments. So we really like MetLife. All right, appreciate that, thank you. All right, unusual activity, Mr. Nigerian. What do you have for us today? Yeah. All right, Scott, I'm gonna start off with Boston Scientific, BSX. This one's pretty interesting, Scott, because of a lot of different reasons, but one of which is the stock has really performed extremely well so far this year. And it looks like somebody expects it to continue to do so because they're buying 6,000 of the June 45 calls. Stock was trading around 42.60. They bought these June 45 calls, very inexpensive, about 30 cents. And there's a little bit of time here. We have obviously have the whole cycle of June to be able to go through. So that's interesting. But also on top of that, last week they were buying the June 44 calls. They bought about 5,000 of those. And today, after this initial trade, they were buying the July 45 calls. So three different hits in a short period of time. Really kind of interesting to see in Boston Scientific continues to move to the upside and push towards the 52-week highs. Now, the second one that I've got for you is Deutsche Bank. We don't talk about this particular name all that often with the financials, but I'll tell you what, it has just hit now a 52-week high, and they're buying the September 15 calls. A little over 8,000 of those calls, they were going from anywhere from $1.10 to $1.15. Looks like somebody's starting to play a little bit of a breakout, but they're giving themselves Plenty of time going out to September. I got one last one for you. Go ahead. Gap Stores. Gap Stores is one, is one of those names. I'm just giving you an update. This isn't anything new. But Gap Stores was running, 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 and they were rolling the entire way up, and they were right until the last time when I was on here and I was talking about Gap Stores. Those options did not perform. The stock pulled back. I'm out of those. Those, unfortunately, uh, went to a zero. But I still, if I see more activity coming in there, Scott, I'm more than likely to get back right in there because the rolls have been right up until this last time. Okay. Uh, all over it. Pete, appreciate it. Thank yep. you. Ask Halftime is coming up Thank next. You. Send your questions in. We will play them on the air, the video ones. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We'll be right back. Okay, let's answer some of your questions. A video one, Joe, let's watch. 
Hello, Halftime Report. It's Mike in Orlando, Florida. If um, an investor only has like $8,000 to invest in the stock market, are they best off putting like $4,000 in an S&P type mutual fund and then using the other $4,000 to buy a couple stocks or an ETF? Thank you. Love the show. Joe, you see that book over his shoulder? Did you notice that? Oh, that, that wasn't I when sure the wolves did, bite. Scott. That was buy high, sell higher. Did you notice that? I noticed it. I know you have that in your living room as well. Let's answer Mike's question. Mike, I want I, I want you to be invested in the S&P, so I want you to have a little bit more than half of the exposure in some sort of a fund. Let's say $5,000, maybe $5,500. let us take the rest. Let's focus on S&P stocks, stocks that we can be confident about that we're going to observe through our ownership of the fund. I don't want you to step out and have the characteristics of highly volatile stocks. Stay with those large-cap S&P stocks. And thanks for having that book. <laughs> All right, good stuff. All right, Shannon, a video question for you now. My name is Pete from Switzerland, and I would like to have your view about the HPE share price because it hasn't moved very much at all. All right, Shannon. Well, the challenge with this company is that they're trying to move from servers to service, and they're really trying to do that pretty quickly over the next year or so. And the challenge here is that although there are benefits from a competitive perspective, to be able to couple that on-site server with the service, there's a lot of competition in this space, and I think that people are waiting to see if they can actually execute. Okay, good stuff. We'll take a break. We'll do final trades next. All right, let's do final trades now. Shannon Sakosha, you are up first. Well, we bought PayPal late last week. You know, the addressable market for digital payments continues to expand. They expect to double their active users of over the next decade. And there really are end-to-end solutions. My second final trade is Bruins in the finals. <laughs> Don't say that. I'm already upset about that. Might have to cut your microphone off. Degas. <laughs> Yes, Volcan Materials. It is uh, uh, benefiting from the increased uh, construction demand, and it has a return on invested capital of 15% year over year. VMC. Okay, thank you for that. Joe Terranova. We mentioned Macy's and Gap. How about owning Dillard's, ticker symbol DDS? Understand they own the properties and they own the construction company that builds the properties. I mentioned Dillard's, I think last week we were talking about retail stocks and it had ripped when we were talking about it, you know, along with some of the other uh, bigger names in that space. All right, Pete, finish it out. Yep. Yeah, here's one that's ripping as well, L Brands. We're seeing some call activity in there. I think it's going a lot higher, Scott. All right, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for watching the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. 
it was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.